the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So one of the pretty exciting recent developments in the basic income space that hasn't received a ton of attention so far is that the state of Massachusetts is actually considering enacting their own basic income pilot program, that they would actually do a trial of basic income in the state uh, that the state itself would be paying for and running. So I got to speak with one of the representatives proposing this trial program. And so here's my conversation with Representative Tammy Govea. All right, Representative Govea, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to start, could you tell us about the bill you proposed around universal basic income in Massachusetts and and what it would do? Yeah, so the bill is um, just a way to start a conversation and uh, start to take a look at innovative ways that we can address um, the ways that work are changing with automation and the changing uh, nature of the kinds of work that people will do in the future, but also making sure that we're meeting everybody's basic needs for housing and food and clothing, et cetera, et cetera. And so what this particular bill will do, which is right now um, on the House side, is House 1632 in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. It's an act relative to universal basic income. And it basically creates um, a pilot project. So uh, we'll give $1,000 to uh, 300 families over a three-year period. And it's really a, a pilot with a focus on asking very specific questions about how people use their money, um, what kinds of cost savings might we ex- experience if we were to expand this statewide, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's exactly meant to just kind of get a sense of what would be the implications of this kind of, um, of a scheme. What would it be like in the state of Massachusetts? Yeah, and I, I want to get into some of those details in a moment. Uh, but first, you, you touched on this at the beginning, but what, what's motivating this bill? It's really about the concerns that I have and, and wanting to be prepared for how work is really changing and finding more efficient ways to meet everybody's basic needs in a way that's humane. Um, you know, the way that we expect people who might experience a loss of a job or bankruptcy due to um, exorbitant health care bills or some other financial constraints, the expectations that we place on them that they go to very separate agencies to get housing, then it's another agency to get food, another agency to get a transportation voucher, on and on. And every single time it, it, they're they're having to retell their story of, um, you know, how they might have come into financial issues. And that's oftentimes filled with shame and embarrassment and disappointment for the person who has to tell that story over and over again. And it's also incredibly redundant between the various bureaucracies um, in which individuals and families need to interact in order to get their, you know, financial needs met. Um, We are a civil society. Uh, The way I think about a civil society, and it's even in in our charter as a commonwealth, that really our successes are wrapped up in the successes or failures of our neighbors. And so the motivation behind this particular piece of legislation is to find more efficient ways to make sure that we're meeting people's basic needs, but in a way that's incredibly respectful and more humane than the current structures and the ways that we have things set up. And if I could say one other thing, in conversations that I have with people um, and have had with people throughout my life, you know, family, friends, to the work that I've done as a social worker, 
I hear uh, over and over again this sort of sense that, you know, do low-income people know how to spend money? Do they know how to save money? And my response to that is that it's so incredibly difficult to get out of a state of poverty because the systems don't really work to support you in getting out of poverty. And so a universal basic income is a way to also address the pitfalls of our system that don't really allow for or foster upward mobility. And so that's the other major motivator of this particular piece of legislation. And yeah, actually, let me give you a chance to say a little more on that. You mentioned all the bureaucratic hurdles that that you know someone on multiple benefit programs would have to go to. Is there another piece of that puzzle that you would fill in? Um, around upward mobility and how, how how it's challenging for someone in poverty to to break out of it. Would you say it's largely the issues around our current programs or or is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that actually because uh, it was sort of lingering in the back of my mind when I was answering one of your earlier questions. So there were, I would say, two other structural issues with our current system that make it incredibly difficult for people to be upwardly mobile. The first is the cliff effect. And I'm sure many of your listeners, if they have been listening to your podcast, they might have already heard about the cliff effect. And what it really means for people is that if you start to make beyond a certain amount of money, you will automatically get a reduction in state aid or state benefits, or you might lose those benefits altogether. So there's in some ways, a disincentive for people to want to try to get a raise, want to try to get a promotion. If all of a sudden it means that they're going to slide backwards because they'll have a, a you know, an, a net effect of um, having basically a pay cut, even if they're working towards the things that we say we want people to do in our society is, you know, work for a promotion or, you know, work to sort of continue to bring themselves up financially. And so sometimes our systems are very counteractive um, to what we would hope that people would want to do. And quite honestly, I firmly believe that people do want to contribute to society as employees and volunteers. People are inherently curious and want to learn and want to um, be productive. And our systems don't always, um, don't always encourage that and oftentimes disincentivize that. So your bill mentions that the recipient should be spread among certain economically diverse areas, including at least one rural one. What's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, the reasoning behind that is we wanted to try to find a way to model what a a more true universal basic income scheme would be, which is under that system, everybody gets a certain um, livable income every single year. And um, it doesn't matter if you're uh, extremely wealthy or extremely low income in that scheme. And so we wanted to make sure that we were cutting across a diversity of uh, economic um, backgrounds that families had that participate in this particular program and wanting to make sure that we're paying attention to some of the issues that are unique to uh, a more rural population as well. We have two large rural areas in our state and um, oftentimes they tend to, you know, sometimes don't get those services, the resources that they need. So wanting to make sure that we're accounting for the diversity that exists um, inherently in the state of Massachusetts in the pilot program that we're setting up. And it was, you know, it's sort of an interesting debate to have about, well, you're, wait a second, hold on, you're giving money to people who already have extreme wealth. And, you know, just like any kind of income um, scheme that we have or ways that people generate income, on the other end, it gets taxed at a particular rate. And so 
that's where some of that um, would be counteracted in a true universal basic income scheme. So we really were just aiming for trying to mimic what might happen in um, a real system around universal basic income. And what would success look like for this pilot program? Yeah, I think success would be if, um, you know, there's a couple things that I would look at as a public health social worker um, and as someone who cares about social justice. Did it make people uh, feel like they had agency and a little bit more control over their finances? Were there areas where people found it particularly easy to save um, personally? And that's some of what we hear from other universal basic income uh, tests that have been done is that you know, it does contribute to the sense that people feel more in control of their finances, which reduces their stress and increases their sense of um, health and well-being. And at the same time, they're finding ways that they can save, again, counteracting some of that cliff effect that I talked about a little bit earlier, because under a lot of um, ways that our beneficiary systems work in the state and federally is that you're not allowed to save a whole lot of money. And we know that, you know, if you have one major car repair or, you know, you get sick and you have to call out of work for two weeks and you don't have enough, um, you know, sick time to cover you and you're not salaried, that means a loss of income. So we know how important savings are to families, but we also know how incredibly difficult it is for families to save um, regardless of what their income background is in so many ways. So, um, you know, just really success would include people feeling like, yeah, I can save now and I can, you know, work towards buying a better car that doesn't break down as often. And therefore I can get myself to work and get my kids to school or to, you know, practice or whatever in a, in a more reliable mode of transportation, or I can pay down some credit card debt and improve my credit score, which means I might be able to move to a better apartment in a different neighborhood. So it's contributing to that, um, that aspect of social upward mobility that I talked about a little bit earlier. And then looking also at the overall cost savings, um, you know, are there ways that by reducing the redundancies in the system, by having multiple bureaucracies that touch people's lives, ask pretty much the same exact questions or very similar questions, are there ways to streamline the whole system? Um, and maybe even, you know, you don't have to provide some of the, the, the same level of backstop the ways that we're providing um, right now to people. And so would we have savings from um, a, a statewide budget level uh, by reducing some of those redundancies and increasing efficiencies and just making it easier so people are not having to, you know, spend half a day at, you know, Department of Transitional Assistance and then another half a day with WIC and then another half a day with Mass Health, Mass Health et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that that issue of of redundant programs is something we we discuss a lot about, and you know, to what degree should we just implement a UBI and worry about those programs as their own issue, and, and to what degree those interact? Um, how how do you evaluate if whether or not you need a social program? Um, I guess in its own context, and also if we were to implement a basic income, let's say in Massachusetts. Um, how, how do you how do you think about whether or not you still need or or should modify some of these existing programs? Yeah, I mean that's where I would really want to have um, people who can do you know computer modeling or economic modeling based on some of the data. I, I would definitely want to uh, you know seek the counsel and expertise of 
those kinds of folks, even as the pilot program is getting really designed and implemented to make sure that we're at the outset, know exactly what kinds of information and data we need to gather from those who are part of the pilot program to, to then on the back end be able to say, okay, here are some of the implications. Certainly, we're not going to be able to get all of the data uh, from the participants to uh, you know, implicate whether or not, to what extent changes need to occur in all of those beneficiary programs and which ones get completely changed or get merged or get eliminated altogether. I think that has to be done through some other kind of simulation um, on top of what you know, being proposed in um, the pilot program and some of the questions that would be asked of um, the recipients. So I think that would, you'd really have to look at some of the income and economic data to see what would make sense. And obviously on the state budget side as well to do a real true, you know, cost benefit and cost saving analysis. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's say this, this pilot program happens and it's everything that we hope for, you know, it's people get out of poverty, maybe they, you know, are able to start new careers or, you know, whatever, whatever the best outcome you could imagine is, what would you say a next step could be? Yeah, I would envision the next step is doing um, a more robust pilot program with uh, probably a broader set of participants. Maybe they, there's a way that we think about um, how some of those beneficiary, how those um, programs that they might be participating in, what how those might be part of the pilot study. Um, I'd look to see how other places have done this as well. Um, you know, Stockton, uh, California, they have um, a very small pilot program. I know the Finland program that's existed. I think there are other places that are also testing this out. So I think learning a little bit about best practices for scale up. I don't think you could just go from one system one day and then another system the next day. I think that'd have to be a real thoughtful ramping up. But I, I do think some additional testing of uh, a UBI and what would work best for our state um, would make the most sense. And then, of course, you know, you have to account for um, the role of the federal government as well and some of those beneficiary, beneficiary programs and entitlement programs and what those would um, also look like and what those impacts might be. Um, so I think this is just really the way to to start and to start the test and then scale it up over time if it if it has success and you know test out some of those areas that might be sticking points um, for full scale up so that it, you know the system is really working for people. Yeah, and I do want to ask about the the politics of this topic in Massachusetts. Uh, what kind of reaction yeah. has your proposal gotten in in the it's the assembly right? Not the is it the house or the assembly? Sorry. Uh, we're in the legislature. Yeah, we have a legislature. We call it the legislature. Or sometimes it's also referred to as the Massachusetts General Court. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. We had a hearing. Um, there were a lot of questions. Um, this was on the House side. I have a Senate counterpart uh, who filed this also, um, Senator Eldridge. And, um, you know, the, the questions were, were good questions. There are questions you would expect. Some of them are based, I think, in not um, understanding some of the potential benefits and values um, behind a UBI scheme. Um, again, I think there's a little bit of a mindset of, wait, what do you mean people are going to get paid to not work? People are going to get money for free. How does that really happen? How does that really work? So just, you know, trying to answer those questions um, as comprehensively and as thoughtfully as possible and really explaining what the motivations are behind this particular um, idea. And then, 
but I do hear from conservatives as well as progressives, um, you know, some interest in exploring this, especially, as I said, as the nature of work really is going to be changing. We're moving so much more into a gig economy, a place where, you know, people really cannot make ends meet on just, you know, one source of income. Um, and that's really been going on for a long time, but I think it's impacting um, some more middle-class um, families more so than in previous years. So I think that's happening, you know, just the ways that uh, certain sectors are being impacted by um, automation as well. So um, I, I hear of interest from both sides of the aisle. I hear from libertarians as well, um, who think that, you know, this is a really interesting way to move forward um, with the way that we structure our economy and um, income sources, because uh, it addresses some of those redundancies and those inefficiencies as well. So there's there's interest from you know all different kinds of political perspectives, um, but it's it's a it's a newer idea. It'll take a little while, I think, to gain some traction and some real interest. Um, so it's just really a way to to get the conversation going and to shine a spotlight on the need to be thinking this way and um, think innovatively towards how we might want to structure things in the future. Yeah, and would you say that? Just thinking about the, the Massachusetts economy and the state of, you know, of poverty, of, you know, the struggles that a lot of working people have, um, is there a general sense that something needs to be done or is, is the status quo still, are people happy with the status quo in the legislature, would you say? Or, or is there a sense that if either basic income or something, but something has to happen? I think that there's a sense that something has to happen. I think there's um, probably not a bubbling up enough of that perspective yet, but I think as we really see certain industries change and certain professions disappear or, um, you, you know, shift to automation more and more, I think people will start saying, okay, what are we going to do about this? Particularly as, you know, young people who graduate college get out into the workforce and there's limited options for different kinds of work, or even if they don't go to college um, and they have, you know, a, a vocational background or a high school diploma or a GED and looking at what those options for work are. So I think, you know, I do hear more and more desire to address and really see income inequality in our state and our country as something that's critically important for us to address. And I think that is going to hopefully drive some curiosity and interest in some innovative ways to address the problem of income inequality, because it's not just about the fact we'll go get, go get an education and go get a good paying job. Those, there are just so many of places where those jobs just don't exist. And we've, we've changed so much over time. And so I do think that there is interest growing in um, addressing this from a, uh, making sure that people have all of their basic needs met and people are really struggling. I hear about it, you know, in the district I represent, and I don't represent a district that's particularly needy, but I hear a lot of worries about how am I going to pay for my kids' college? How am I going to pay for my housing? How am I going to pay for my housing as I need to downsize? Can I still live in the same community when I retire? Um, what kinds of jobs are my kids going to be able to get and my grandkids what kinds of jobs will my grandkids be able to get? So I do hear those those fears. Um, and 
um, I, I hear it a little bit more and more as I, as I talk to people in, in the district and in different parts of the state and a desire to, you know, maybe start thinking about things slightly differently. I think there's also, you know, on the other side, people want to hold corporate America more accountable and um, in terms of ways to address income inequality and uh, make sure that everybody's paying their fair share into whatever system we have, um, whether we live under a UBI or we live under the current, um, you know, way that we organize work. That was Owen speaking with Massachusetts Representative Tammy Govea on the Basic Income Podcast. So couple things there stood out to me. But one thing that I thought was of particular interest that we, we haven't really discussed too much before is how with a basic income, we, we do talk about the comparison between basic income and other welfare programs that have a cliff. And so this being a way that people wouldn't be afraid about losing benefits if they start earning more. But another big, big factor there is the effect of asset limits. The fact that a lot of programs that exist today, you can't actually receive those benefits if you have more than a certain amount in savings. And what that means effectively is that you're you're kept in a place where you aren't you aren't able to cover big expenses because and you're not able to save because you put your benefits in jeopardy. And so I think the idea of exploring whether basic income then allows greater savings, which then opens up a whole host of new opportunities for people is actually a, a really interesting area to be explored and see if, if that can really be a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, I'll admit some ignorance on that one. Um, I generally think of this in terms of income, in terms of you know whether or not you're above or below a certain threshold. Yeah, the inability to save is is huge. And that you, know, you can't really be secure if you don't have you know at least a few thousand bucks in the bank that to uh, cover some expenses or just to... Uh, have a cushion for whatever comes your way. Um, and yeah, the idea that basic income could just be a separate thing that provides a safety net, whether or not those programs continue to exist in their current form, yeah, obviously that would make a huge difference. And sort of plays into a, a lot of what she talked about around, and when she was talking about the economic benefits of a basic income, a lot of it was put in terms of the psychological lift it would provide to not have to worry in the same way, to not constantly be on the edge. And, and I think savings provide that same sort of both economic but psychological cushion. And just to provide some more context, since folks may not be super familiar, asset limits often are around $2,000, $3,000. So it, it, yeah, it's really putting a pretty hard ceiling on on what's possible for you when you have to make sure you're, you're not getting above that amount of money in the bank account if you don't want to lose, lose your assistance. I think another thing, I was just inspired to hear that it seems like this is getting some real traction there, that the way that she said other legislators were responding is that there was there was real interest there. Whether or not it passes, of course, we'll have to see. But even having a serious conversation, even if it doesn't go anywhere, if, if that's where you're starting from, it means that much less distance you have to cover to, to eventually be able to get there. Yeah, and I would be thrilled if this bill passed. But even just getting that conversation going, and much less controversial bills often take two or three sessions in the legislature before they, you know, sometimes it takes that much to even get a vote. But just just to show people that this is a real conversation, it's not going away, and it's something they're going to have to think about more and more, a lot of legislators don't 
don't really have a strong opinion, I think, about basic income, or they just brush it off for all the re- same reasons that your random person on the street would brush it off quickly. So just to to get that ball rolling is is definitely a big step. Yeah, we'll definitely want to keep a close eye on, on the program going forward to, to see what happens there. All right, that'll do it for this episode. And as a reminder, we now are up on Glow FM. So if you go to glow.fm slash basic income, you can become a supporter of the podcast. If you sign up for a small monthly contribution, you'll be shouted out on the podcast, and you'll also get access to an exclusive Slack channel where you'll get first notification about the episodes and be able to discuss it with myself and Owen. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And tell your friends, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.